1: Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with one dollar minimum purchase. Bada
0: ba one time on Friday said participating medals through twelve thirty one twenty-four excludes tax must update rewards.
2: Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast which gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in a room inside a three-story terraced Wardian house in Ivanhoe Road in the pleasant suburb of Sefton Park in Liverpool. It's the early 1930s. We're watching a small boy, a plump toddler, sitting on a faded white rug playing with wooden building blocks. The floor is dark green cork. There are dark green blinds instead of curtains, and a round Charles table with four legs and two little cane bottomed chairs. The bookshelf has a tattered set of Beatrix Potter, and next to that, there's a wind up gramophone and a few old 78 records. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Where people crowdfund the books they really want to read.
3: And I'm Andy Miller, author of "The Year of Reading Dangerously," and today we are recording our first podcast, "As You Can't Tell," in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and joining us are two residents of this fine city, each making their backlisted debuts. To my right, Jeff Young. hello, Jeff.: Hello there. Hello, Hi. Jeff. And to further to my right, uh, Lizzie Nunnery. Hello, uh, Hi, Hello. thanks for coming. Uh, Jeff Young is the author of Ghost Town, a Liverpool shadow play, uh, which was shortlisted for the Costa Prize and longlisted for the Portico, published by Little Toller. Rough Trade Books published his excellent pamphlet, Deliria, in 2023. He is an essayist, scriptwriter for radio and stage, and used to write for TV. He collaborates with musicians and artists on installations, sound art, spoken word, and performance projects in places such as a submarine dock, shipyard warehouse, <laughs> derelict townhouse, cobbler's shop, Whoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a- a- and boating lakes. And he's a collagist and assemblage maker. Wild Twin, the sequel to Ghost Town, is out in 2024. Pop quiz, Jeff Young. Okay. We are sitting in a building just by the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. Do you have any idea what this building was used for before it was a podcast studio? I don't know. So you could just make something up now. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, is, is this where the hotel used to be that's in uh, Letter to Brezhnev? Oh, God. It's It's on the site, isn't it? But I think it might be a newer building. Than,
5: I only watched um, that last week.
4: Did you? It looks like yeah. it There's from outside. There's a scene where in, the, in the morning in Brezhnev where she... Uh, Margie Clark's looking out of the window with the sailor that she slept with and they look out onto that green space. It's, uh, it, there.
2: Psychogeography yeah. it, it happening in real yeah. time. Until love
4: it. quite recently, though, it was a Tesco hit. But- <laughs> well, that's romantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Tesco geography,
4: not psychogeography. <laughs>
3: but for, our, for our younger listeners and viewers of whom there are none Letter to, Bre- Letter to Brezhnev was a, uh, was a very good and popular film one of the early films on film four wasn't it if I remember right, yeah, right. Yeah, I well you it. you have passed with that flying you can stay Jeff <laughs> thank, thank you <laughs> you passed that with thank flying colours um, Lizzie Nunnery is a playwright singer songwriter and screenwriter from Liverpool her first play in Temperance, a Liverpool Everyman production in 2007 was awarded five stars by The Guardian and shortlisted for the Mayor Whitworth Award In 2006, her play Unprotected, performed at the Liverpool Everyman and the Traverse Edinburgh, won the Amnesty International Award for Freedom of Expression, 2006. More recently, Heavy Weather, staged at the Tonic Theatre, was nominated for Best Play for Young People at the Writers Guild Awards 2022, and her play with songs, Narvik. That's the one. Is Is this a backlisted first? What? Is this the first time we've ever had... The musical author theater. of a stage musical, as yes, our guest. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's a- it was worth coming. Sorry, Lizzie probably doesn't realise. That's a sincere <laughs> a, excitement. That's not big, me being ironical. It's a
2: big thing for us. Absolutely. <laughs> uh,
3: that's wonderful. Um, Narvik won Best New Play in the UK Theatre Awards in 2017 and will be produced in Bodo, Norway, for European Capital of Culture 2024. Wow. wow. Lizzie's short film, Another World, was produced by BBC in 2020 and her debut feature film, With Love, is in development with Blue Horizon Productions, supported by the BFI. She's currently developing an original TV drama series with BBC Studios, a psychological drama set in...
5: Liverpool. In Liverpool, <laughs> yes, course. yes. About, uh,
3: about <laughs> Catholicism and witchcraft. Yes. yes. Um she, is, <laughs> she has also written extensively for BBC Radio with latest series, Daphne, A Fire in Malta, broadcast in 2019. Now, I, w- I do just want to tell listeners... One of the reasons we were so thrilled that you were able to join us is you are a musician, yeah. and furthermore, you have written about um, local legend, the poet Adrian Henry. So we we have one of the most qualified panels <laughs> imaginable to talk about um,
2: the Scouse Mouse himself, George yes, Melly. Well, because that's the book we're talking about, um, which is chronologically the first part of a. Quadrology of Memoirs by George Melly, who as well as being a Liverpudlian born and bred was a celebrated jazz and blues singer, a critic, writer, lecturer, uh, cartoonist, aficionado of surrealism. Scouse Mouse was first published by Weidenfeld in 1984 mm. and was almost the last <laughs> of the quadrilogy to be published, although it covers, in fact, his first 14 years growing up in a middle-class <laughs> Liverpool family tinged with eccentricity and theatricality and his experiences at school. Subtitled, I Never Got Over It, it was preceded by Rum, Bum, and Concertina account of his time in the Navy, published in 1977, and Owning It, which covers his years, as an aspiring magician in the jazz world of the 1950s, first published in 1965. He later (laughs) named Mouse as his favourite of the four, adding, I don't know why the events of over 60 years ago should be so much clearer than those of yesterday afternoon, but they are. He also adopted that ever-useful motto for the memoirist, Life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. How much this classic childhood memoir helps us understand the complex life of the grown-up George Mellie is one of the things we're here to discuss. When I say to you, George Mellie, one
3: of the things I've discovered when we've been preparing this episode is I thought I knew who George Mellie was, and maybe I did, but there are all these other George Mellies I wasn't really aware of. And um, for reasons I think we'll talk about later, it seems to me that his... Reputation, his posthumous reputation has probably suffered for that very reason. Mm. The reason he is not so well known is he wasn't one thing, no. or rather, he was, and that thing was George Melly. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. when I, so Jeff, when if I say to you the name George Melly, what's the first thing you think
4: of? I think of Liverpool, I think of the city. Um, the way I got interested in George Melly was through searching for writers that were writing about the city. And um, to me, he's the quintess- one of the quintessential Liverpool characters, iconoclasts, you know. I feel a quite a potent connection to him because at the end of the street I live in, there, there is a, a place called Priory Woods, and George was born in a house in the woods. The house is no longer there. Mm-hmm. He was born there just around the corner. The, the way I walk to the shops every morning to buy the paper... I walk down a street called Melly Road, uh, which is a street named after his family. Um, Several times a week, I walk up Ivanhoe Road where he spent his childhood. Uh, I walk past 22 Ivanhoe, which he writes about in Scouse Mouse. And so I think I just always thought of him as someone that, that represents in some way the city. Plus the fact that my dad used to go and see him when my dad was young. My dad was a jazzer. He was into humph. You know Humphrey Littleton and uh, and uh, Chris Barber and that kind of thing, and he used to tell tell us stories about going to see George. So I feel that it's like he, he's somewhere there. He's somewhere there in, in 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 the atmosphere of the city for me.
3: Okay, so here's the thing: I didn't even know he was a scouser before we started doing this. <laughs> ah,
4: yeah. Well, you, that's what I
3: mean. But that's what I, I mean. I, I had no. I had mean, no idea.
4: Yeah, well, I mean it really. I suppose why would you? I mean, he's always loved Liverpool. You know, he's always been very loyal to it. He's always come back, but his whole demeanour, you know, is kind of upper middle class mm-hmm. uh, from a, from a business and shipping background. They had maids, you know, they had staff. Yeah. yeah. Um, even though they were kind of shabby genteel, um, but his whole delivery, his 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 vo- his voice, you know, his vocal inflection, you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. find a trace of of, of Little puddle in in that. So it is kind of quite a discovery.
3: Well, he's very much an example of the the self-created individual, the self-created work of art. Yeah. Isn't he? I mean that's but, but being able to call on different things at any given time. Lizzie, same question to you. George Melly, when I say George Melly to you, who do you think of?
5: Jazz singer and kind of eccentric radical spirit. I first Came across him when I was working on a show. It was like a a one-off at the Everyman that Jeff was part of um, called Radical City in 2011. And it was kind of a happening. We were trying to Mm -hmm. emulate the happenings of the 60s. Um, Me and a really great playwright, Lindsay Rodden, curated it together. So we were researching all the radical figures of Liverpool's history as much as we could. And he obviously popped up, you know this this man who was, you know, a musician and also a writer and also just a kind of um, ball of energy. Yeah, he -hmm. he pops up in everyone else's stories, and he Mm -hmm. he was really prominent as a friend of Adrian Henry as well, who, you know, I am fascinated by as a as a figure within popular culture and as a poet and a painter. So, kind of represents a an attitude to me, George Melly.
3: And was he, uh, now this again, this is, I can't, what a basic question. Was he a good musician?
5: <laughs> I think he was a good jazz singer. Yeah, yeah. 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 he really applied himself to the craft. What,
3: why? What's he got? And not just tone, but what's he got that 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 makes it authentic?
5: I think in a, from a technical perspective, rhythm is everything with jazz singers. And he he really does have that like, precise delivery and that ability to swing with his voice. But I think it's more than that. It's a little bit like how he writes about other people. He kind of finds a way of cutting to the the core of um, of their charisma. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the world's full of good rhythmic jazz singers, but he just brought uh, a style that was of a moment and completely his own as well. And on the records, the um, the warmth and the energy and the and um, the affection that comes through his voice as well for the material, for the audience, I think that yeah. really sets him apart. Um, yeah, he was a wonderful performer.
3: Right. The, the figure he reminds me of, John, is um, Barry Humphreys, yeah. which is mm. to say, yeah. we remember yeah. them from being on TV, yeah, yeah. but they come from a cultural place, the hinterland that they come from. Is so famously Robert Hughes said of Barry Humphreys, he was the only person in Australia to understand Dada, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and, and, and Melly is a Mellie similar a Dadaist, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? As Absolutely. well, so these people that we're perhaps habituated to. I mean, I just you know popping up on Wogan to do ten minutes and the number, yeah. to, you know. But that was him too, right? That's all. But John George Melly. What does the name George <laughs> Melly mean to you?
2: I, I encountered George Melly weirdly through through a book in a holiday cottage in New Zealand which was where I was living. And, you know, there are those weird books that end up in, <laughs> yeah. in that you end up reading because there's mm. nothing else there. And I picked up and read a book called Bum, and concertina. <laughs> I thought it was one of the, I thought it was, it was the most unlikely funny. I mean, just brilliant. You know, I sometimes think about influence in terms of being able to tell a story in, a, in a, what appears to be an effortless way. I mean, I devoured it and then lent it to friends and told, and then I, and then I discovered much later on when I was back and in London, George Manley was not only still alive, he was performing. I went yeah. to see him sing, which is incredible. Yeah. And also the best of all was to, occasionally, if you were in Jerry's or I very occasionally went into the colony room and he was telling a story. That, it's that voice. He just had this incredible presence. Yeah. Obviously, you know the fedora, the suits. The, but that I think that ability, which is going back to what Lizzie was saying about the, the, the why he was a good singer. Maybe he wasn't a great singer, but he was. My God, if you were there watching yeah. him with John Chilton, the Feet warmers you mm. didn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah. It was just mm. it was it was just great entertainment. He was also I I just one of my kind of. The people I love who've got very low bottom thresholds, which I suspect is is actually kind of, as you say, maybe counting against him now because he did so many things. I
3: will lob in my own connection to George Melly. As uh, long-time listeners will know, I am my my specialist subject is (laughs) often the 1960s, and my knowledge of the 1960s would be much poorer without Melly's contribution both in the moment, as the decade was happening, as a satirist and a cartoonist and a reviewer and a columnist, but also, firstly, as the author of the script (laughs) of the film Smashing Time. (laughs) There's the soundtrack LP, everybody, um, which is perhaps not a great film, but a fascinating film in as much as it was written by Melly as a satire of Swinging London while London was still swinging. So it's much sharper, nastier, and, (laughs) um, and, um, more cynical than you might expect from something, you know, Austin Powers-ish superficially. (laughs) Okay. Um, but also he's the author of a book that I talked about on Backlisted in our, what have you been reading this week slot? Eight years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, on episode 22, which is um, about The Animal Family by Randall Jarrell, I talked about and read a little from Revolt into Style, Melly's did. book that was his his um, chronicle of what pop meant at the end of the 1960s as a result of the 60s. A still magnificent book, mm. some of which I read again. I might read a little bit later on about pop, what he considered to be pop literature. Um He's all these things and all these other things we haven't talked about. Yeah, I have a quote before we go on to um, Scouse Mouse specifically. Near the end of his life, he was asked, would you say that your persona has overshadowed your talents? (laughs) I was going to save this to the end, but actually it's just too good not to break it out now. Would you say your persona has overshadowed your talents? Well, he said, that's a sort of non-question to me. What talent? What persona? (laughs) A lot of people don't know I write, and a lot of people who read books don't know I sing. The maximum recognition I've ever received in public was after appearing on Room 101. (laughs) It's a harmless programme, amusing even, but when I think of 30 years of singing (laughs) and pounding the country and people come up to me and say... You were on Room 101, weren't you? (laughs) People don't think you're real if you're not on television. I go into a local pub and I know the guys there, they'll say, I haven't seen you on the box lately, (laughs) very accusingly. (laughs) I don't care. I do what I do as well as I can. That's all. Brilliant, lovely. Proper artist is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I really, do totally what I agree. do as well as I can yeah, is as yeah. good a definition yeah. of artistry as we could yeah. as we yeah. could find. Yeah. So, Jeff, Scouse Mouse, is this your favourite of the volumes of memoir? It,
4: it is. Um, I I read Owning Up first. I read them. I think in the sequence they came out. I read Owning Up and then I read Rumbum, concertina and then I came to this when it when it first came out. And I think it's it connects to me because I write a lot about childhood, <clears throat> and um, I just find that he he he, he immerses himself so um, warmly, mm-hmm. um, tenderly, in, into his own childhood, and through his childhood, through his, you know, it's. Quite a large family: <laughs> his parents, his 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 brother and sister, his grandparents, the aunties and the uncles, and he creates this vast <laughs> cast of characters. He says at one point that they're like characters in a radio show, you know. And it, and it's this: there are so many characters that you lose track. Yeah. And I like I actually really I like that. that. Thing, yeah. I sometimes I, I turn back a few pages and I think, oh God, who is this? Yeah. And it kind of doesn't <laughs> matter because he's so. He 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 loves them, you know, and I, so I found that I I found that warmth and generosity and um, good humour, even the people that he doesn't particularly like, <laughs> he's he's really kind to, you know. So I yeah, childhood. I write about childhood a lot. I just wrote a book about it, you know, mm. uh, and, it, and 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 um, and again, it's it's touchable. I can even though it's you know nearly a hundred years ago. Um, the houses are still there, and the streets are still there, so I can walk through and, his story.
3: And do you, do you and Lizzie, do you feel Melly's powers of recall here are suspicious? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I think I think he acknowledges that. Yeah. Um, he talks about his cousin's research that he's drawn on and. He mentions the fact that he's had to check things and look into things. Yeah. It is very detailed. Yeah. It is incredible that yeah. anyone could remember every detail of the nursery as yeah, you read at the beginning. Yeah. But in a way, I believe that. I believe those yeah. kind of court fragments of childhood. Um, there's There's a moment when he talks about the backyard in Ivanhoe Road and the, the washing flapping and this like slice of sky. And you yeah, think yeah, it's, it? it's so well mm. well written, isn't it? Yeah. And you think, well, that's a little piece of childhood that's caught. But then, yeah, there's a lot that I think he's presenting as I remember that must be kind of gathered through yeah. time, unless he has an incredible recall. Hey, a Some people of both, do.
2: A bit of both is fine. Yeah. yeah. And he, he says, you know, the thing about memory is that your memories he, – he, there's a bit where he – there's a lovely bit where he remembers being next to his mo- mother in a car, yes. looking mm-hmm. up at her and then she says, only problem with that is my mother never drove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a book about memory as Fid- much as – His
3: fidelity to – Representing what he thinks he remembers would be my, <laughs> would be my, would be my analysis of it. Is is genuinely cool. remar- remarkable? I think, yeah. Lizzie, you said something really interesting before we came on air about how he observes himself as a character while recording his perceptions. How do, can you give us an example of him <clears throat> of him doing that?
5: Um, I think it's there throughout, and it, it makes it. A really fascinating book i think that we're particularly used to modern memoirs having a narrative angle and i think it's really interesting how he doesn't paint himself as kind of hero or victim or he barely draws any lines of my mother was this so i became this or this is why i'm a singer it's he just kind of places himself in a moment and observes how he felt Mm. you know his kind and I think oddly that connects to all, everything he writes later about pop music and about kind of releasing yourself from the weight of the past. Um, but there's, there's a great bit that's actually, I think, in... Look at just, those
3: look at those post-it, post-it notes. Oh, notes I, I'm, right
5: <laughs> I'm addicted to post-it notes. Yeah, right at the end of Scouse Mouse when he's talking about having his holiday in um, Berkdale when he's been evacuated. Oh, yeah. um, and he just kind of ponders about why he did this thing. And I'm certain this is a real memory because um, he's as as baffled by it as anyone else. And he says, "Um, that evacuated holiday in Beckdale. I decided one afternoon to dress up in some of Maud's clothes, make my face up and walk with Andre, then eight into Southport. I've no idea why I wanted to do this. I've never been attracted to transvestism and with this solitary exception, have only worn drag at fancy dress parties when it was requested and once, as a joke, during the last evening of a season at Ronnie Scott's. This day, however, I went to pick up Andre, and we set off down Waterloo Road, me tottering along on Maud's court shoes, Andre with strict instructions to remember to call me Auntie. <laughs>
4: and
5: on the outskirts of Southport proper were two back to back public toilets, sited on an island in the middle of the road. Holding Andre firmly by the hand, I entered and used the ladies. We then walked on into Southport, where we had an ice in a fashionable cafe in Lord Street, and returned home. <laughs>
3: yeah. Like That's so many things, you. you couldn't do now. You yeah. couldn't really do then either. <laughs> um, can we, before we go on to talk about Scouse Mouse a bit more and about Jeff about um, Melly's prose and his descriptions of, of Liverpool, we have a clip here from Good Lord, thirty years ago. Um, I, those of a certain age will recognise this almost immediately.
1: Foggy night in old Liverpool, birthplace of a flamboyant entertainer who made his musical mark on the city long before the Beatles ever immortalised the Cavern Club. And tonight he's back in town for a nostalgic gig. As a young boy, his greatest thrill was a weekly visit to this theatre, the Liverpool Playhouse. And tonight he is the top of the bill. When I tell you that our man has been a sailor, a writer, a critic, an art expert and a jazz singer, you'll understand why nobody has ever called him predictable. Here I go. (laughs) I must tell you... So John Chilton and the others know there's an extra booking tonight and I have come to Liverpool, Paul, as you might have suspected, to say tonight, George Melly, this is your life. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. I never
6: thought it would happen because I didn't believe I knew enough respectable people you
1: see. Well, enough people know you and there's a story as colorful as one of your suits to be told. Is there now? Yes.
6: Mm-hmm. And we're it's heading to a,
1: a studio near here to tell this. So. Um, it's time to
6: let the
3: good times roll and to thank your audience once again. Thank you, Jeff. Could you, for for listeners, uh, could you describe <laughs> yeah. what George is wearing well, on stage? Uh, I
4: can, but with a slight caveat is that I'm colourblind. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm so how, sorry. However,
3: guess it's fine.
4: However, um, it, I mean, what it looks like is it looks like fabric that's made out of seaside bunting and yeah, it does and and, uh, and children's ribbons. You know, it's multi multi coloured, and the tie looks like it's made from the same material, but it's it's gone wrong in the wash. So <laughs> you know, anyone else who wore that would look like an absolute mess, but George looks astonishing. The one occasion when I met George uh, Melly, he was wearing lilac, apparently. Uh, a, li- uh, a, a lilac pinstripe. Uh, nice, good, zoots. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm.
3: very good. <laughs> um, you can find the whole of that episode of This Is Your Life on YouTube. If you are <laughs> yes. a fan of smashing time, yeah. <laughs> go forward to 14 minutes in, and Rita Tushingham appears yeah. as a guest. So, <laughs> um, Jeff, the pros, then the pros. What I was astounded when I read this, again, on a very basic level, I think one would in- be inclined to think of a book by George Melly, certainly at this point, as, you know, the lighthearted memoir of a celebrity. And indeed, the phrase celebrity memoir is so devalued now. Yeah. I was astonished how well written this is. Yeah. Mm. Astonished, and actually, it wasn't very widely reviewed. I had a look for yeah. reviews. There aren't many because oh, presumably people thought George Melly. We don't. Re- we don't review George Melly. Mm. By the time this comes up, what are the trademarks of the prose in in here?
4: Yeah, I, th- I think it's that um, if 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 he got it wrong or if somebody else w- was writing these stories, that they, they it would be just a kind of cavalcade of anecdotes. You know, uh, that, that was skipped through he doesn't do that he does tell stories but he also just takes time he enters into it he immerses himself in into you know going back to that thing about the way he remembers or misremembers or invents the memories of the of the rooms you know this but it's this kind of inner space he takes you into these rooms and up those corridors and stairways and um he's in no hurry to tell the next gag there are gags there is yeah. a lot of humor in it but he's he's relaxing into it. He's in no rush, and neither should we be. Let's absorb the character and atmosphere of these places and these incredible people that we meet on the way.
3: You know. mm. John, that you had read Rumbal and Concertina, yeah, that was a fairly notorious book in its era, was it not? <laughs> it was. How does Scouse Mouse
2: compare uh, to that? Um, I I think I'm with Jeff. In in I, I love Rumbal and Concertina, mm. but it is. Yeah it 's a performance yeah. out to shock, out to kind of you know a, a petto le bourgeois, uh, whereas I think this is a, I, this is one of the, the most interesting books about early childhood that i 've read One is he does the, the the structure is interesting he does the flaneur thing he 's taking Carol Ann Duffy, who married to Adrian Henry around showing her Liverpool and his old haunts. That's what starts him off in this sort of train of recollection. And he comes right back to her at the very end of the book and to point out all the places and, and to, to, to sort of wrap up the, the ends of what happened to this extraordinary cast of characters. Mm. I, I really like what Lizzie said. He doesn't – I mean, there's there's a funny bit which I was – I might read later about his mum's sexual fantasies, yeah, okay. <laughs> but he doesn't do any kind of Freudian analysis. He doesn't try and explain how did George Melly come out of all of this. What he does is he gives you an almost—it it is almost unbelievable—beyond Dickensian the kind of the, 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 the characters, his yeah. mother, the, the, his quiet father, and then all the uncles and all the—and you say you get completely lost. Yeah. You're having to check back. And he says things like, I don't know very much about my mother's family and proceeds to tell (laughs) you everything Everything. about all these incredible characters.
3: I'd just like to read a little bit, the bit you were talking about, about um, the book starts with him flaneuring alongside Carol Ann Duffy. For personal reasons, I found this an uncanny experience reading this. (laughs) I was in Liverpool recently singing for two nights at Kirkland's where yes. was Kirkland's?
4: Kirkland's is on Harman Street. It's now called Fly and the Loaf. It's okay. A, a boozer. It used to be a bakery and then it was Liverpool's kind of City Centre's first proper wine bar.
3: Okay. Yeah. Originally an elegant nineteenth century bakery, right. Now this a wine is so bar. would have this level of Liverpool's <laughs> the <laughs> music it. I know. You're fact checking this yeah. for George. I stayed as I usually do with the painter and poet Adrian Henry and his companion, the poet Caroline Duffy. Before my second gig, Adrian having left to recite his poems somewhere in Cumbria, (laughs) I invited Carol Ann to dine with me in a bistro in Lark Lane in the suburb of Sefton Park. And as it was a fine evening in late March, I suggested we took a short bus ride to the gates of Prince's Park and walk from there. Caroline didn't know this part of Liverpool very well, but I did. It was where I lived until I left to work in London in the late forties. We caught the bus opposite the Rialto, a Moorish cinema built during the twenties, and now a furniture store. Yeah,
4: no, it's no longer there. It got burned down and, uh, in the Toxteth riots.
3: And moved smoothly <laughs> up Prince. <laughs> it's it's like having <laughs> sidebars or footnotes. they so good. And move smoothly up Prince's Boulevard. There is a statue of a Victorian statesman at each end of the tree-lined yellow gravel walk running up its centre there. Yeah, Not one anymore, of the, there one isn't. Of them,
4: yeah, the, well, one of them certainly got... One of them was pulled down in the Toxeth riots. There you there there. go. Um,
3: Sorry, I'm... I'm
5: we could have a real side. One of them was pulled the down because they mistakenly thought it was a slave, a slave trader, trader when it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the one at the Princess Park okay. yeah. yeah.
3: And my maternal grandmother always advised her uh, friends to wait for a 33 tram. It took, in her view, a prettier way than either the 1 or the 45, which ran to the Dingle through slums and dilapidated shops close to the river. It may be that that led The Guardian in one of the few reviews to write, no one I can think of, incidentally, has written better about trams.
2: (laughs) Uh, Of of course.
3: Prince's Park, an alternative childhood walk to the far larger, almost adjacent Sefton Park, is long and narrow, surrounded by the backs of big houses and mansion blocks, and enclosing a chain of artificial lakes, duck-strewn and the colour of brown Windsor soup, fenced in by croquet hoop-like railings. At the entrance to the lakes is a small gravestone commemorating Judy the children's friend a donkey which died at an advanced age in 1924 John I can see the grave of Judy the donkey from my office window <laughs> I couldn't and it's hi, and it's hidden away it's under a tree Amazing. it's kind of yeah. like so to to pick the book up and see George
5: mm-hmm.
3: when was this written this must be 40 plus years ago yeah
5: hmm. I think it's walking through
3: yeah. Walking through a. a 84. 84, 84. 84. Walking yeah. it through a.
2: 40 years ago.
3: This year. So it's 40 years ago, writing about 60 years earlier, and the only trace of the mm. statues have gone, the trams don't run, the furniture store got burnt <laughs> down in the riots, but the grave of Judy the Donkey yeah, is yeah. still there for those who know where to look.
5: There's so much that's still there, though, as well. Um, and I think. Like what you've just described, those locations across the decades, do create this feeling of the uncanny when you're so familiar with these places. Now he's describing like Sefton Park all in the past tense, mm. but almost everything he's describing is still there if you go mm. there right now. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I think there's there's a, a feeling of validation almost that you experience all these places as beautiful and magical or significant anyway, even if they're mundane. And then to have them there in this in this really fine prose. Mm. Kind of elevates them, you but know. It, it
3: reminds me of your both your work and your work, Jeff. That idea of like Ghost Town is a book that perambulates Liverpool in the present and the past simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. And you've written about Adrian Henry at some length, and you were talking there about the happenings yeah. that were such yeah. a big part yeah. of the the British cultural scene, not just mm-hmm. the Liverpool scene, but the British cultural scene in terms of forging links with the States, with beat writers in in America and what have you. And and Lizzie, I wonder if you could talk a bit more to that idea, the idea of Melly as somebody who represents those different Liverpools simultaneously.
5: Yeah, he kind of bridges the decades, doesn't he, and then bridges all these different cultural movements. And I think the really incredible thing when you're you're reading his various books is that he manages to have this kind of openness throughout all that you know he could easily have been a traditional jazz guy who was Mm. just disgusted by pop and that was the end of his cultural experience Mm. and contribution he Mm. could he could easily have seen pop art or you know the the literature of adrian henry and the liverpool poets as kind of crass Mm. but i think that's kind of what i find most impressive about him as a figure when you start to look closely is that what he saw was this great Cultural democracy and yes. democratization yeah. mm. that was happening and, and saw Absolutely. that as liberating mm. i 'd love to have kind of been able to listen in on his conversations with Adrian Henry because yeah. I feel like that 's where they collided
2: reading this book also you get i mean it sounds a bit a bit overblown, but the idea of where modern sensibility comes from he 's victorian edwardian his his childhood yeah. really mm. he said once that his his interest in surrealism came from seeing a lot of first world war veterans sitting in this lounge um, surrounded by kind of potted plants yeah. and it's, and they all had missing the palm and they all had missing limbs yeah. and it was just the juxtaposition yeah. of uh, of the veterans with the kind of the the kind of louche 19 sort of 20s you feel in the book what's clever it could have just been one anecdote after another yeah. He's, I think he's doing something more clever in, in the way he selects and puts his the, the various memories. Yeah. Although he never says this, you think, yeah, I can sort of see why you became so interested in modern art, apart from the, want, the desire to shock and to, and to perform, which well, is clearly there all the way through.
3: We're going we're gonna to play a quick uh, game now, which I'm calling One Degree of Separation. <laughs> I'm going to give each of you the name of an artist or a celebrity and you have to get to George Melly in one move. Okay. Okay. So, should we go? Let's start with the with uh, with with Jeff. And I will not accept any answer <laughs> that contains the word Beatles. Okay. What's what is the connection? From how can you get from George Melly to George Harrison?
4: Yeah. Okay. George and band were driving home from a gig in the north. <laughs> And they stopped off for some reason, which I'm not quite sure. They stopped off at George and Patty's mansion. In Henley. In Henley. And they hung around with George for a while. And then they got on their way to the Reading Festival. And uh, when they got to the Reading Festival and they were setting up for their slot, for their gig, (laughs) their roadie turned around and their roadie was George Harrison.
3: Wow, that's not the answer I have on the card. But that's
4: what a good answer.
3: Yeah, can I give you? Can I? Can I give you another link? Then? Yeah, go on. Oh, great. Okay, this is from the. This is from um, a piece from the Liverpool Echo. Mm-hmm. George Melly loved the Beatles, he told me so. In a suit as loud as one of their Sergeant Pepper outfits, I drank with the colourful singer before he went on stage. <coughs> Dear boy, he said, they are Liverpool. You think of them, and the city comes up in your mind. How right he was. On the day I met him, he had in his inside pocket a white envelope. Do you know, old chap, he said. After two large gin and tonic, I went from a boy to an old chap. <laughs> what do you think is in here? I told him I wasn't psychic. He laughed and said, it's a check from George Harrison to go towards the renovation of the Palm House. The beautiful Sefton Park Palm House was in an ugly way and a campaign was mounted to restore it to its former glory. As a journalist, I asked Mr. Mellie how much it was for and he put his finger to his lips and said, never shall be told. George Harrison, he pointed out, didn't want publicity. Oh, oh, wow. beautiful. Isn't that great? Yeah. St-
5: I feel I have to say I got married in the Palm House. Oh, <laughs> <so.
2: laughs> and
5: that could never have been possible no. without the two yeah. Georgians. Wow, yeah, that's, that's so that's nice. Beautiful. All
2: right, yeah. well, gorgeous,
3: Lizzie. I turn to you then. With um, you're probably not even old enough to know who this is, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> uh, get from from Tony Hancock to George Melly in one move.
5: It is George's sister. She was um, an actress and she was on Tony Hancock's Half Hour.
3: Andre Melly, that is quite correct. <laughs> Passed with flying um, colours. Brilliant. Did what, you know that? I didn't know that, no. Okay. What did she play in Hancock's Half Hour? She's sort of the straight person yeah, yeah. in the original lineup of Hancock's Half Hour. So she's not Kenneth Williams, Sid James, uh, or, or, or Bill. She's
2: she's there yeah. to kind of give Tony the, the flat should, lines. We should give credit to um to Maud, the mm. the, the Melly mother mm. because uh, she was uh, she was he's very funny in the book, isn't he? He always says she's oh, she's obviously fruity and theatrical, mm. but then he's always saying, Well, she was quite timid and, and not assertive. Doesn't sound like <laughs> no. she seems to know everybody. All right, yeah. so yeah. so Mitch, here's, uh, the, here's okay. the third one.
3: Uh, get from and you have two choices. If you do both, then that's 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 a feather in your cap. Uh, get from George Melly in one move to either
2: Gene Reese or Bruce Chatwin or both. <laughs> okay, I I can get to Bruce Chatwin. George Melly and Diana Melly had a had had a house in Wales. He's very fond of Wales. One of the other things about George Melly, which I, I didn't know, but now do know. Is he was a really, really keen fly fisherman all the way through his he life. He was. He and sold.
3: He sold a Magritte to fund his uh, <laughs> buying a stretch of the river. Uh,
2: True. Through- for, for those who are going to go on and read, you, you learn about his first his, landing, his first trout, which is a, yeah. one of the well good scene in the book. But it, it, that was the house where um, he Bruce Chatwin wrote on the Black Hill. That is correct. I don't know. You're <laughs> going to have to fill in the Reese, Andy. Jean Reese became very
3: famous and successful in the late 1960s and she considered it in true Rhysian fashion to be one of the worst things that ever happened to her <laughs> because not only had it come too late, but she was constantly being asked to do things she didn't really want to do, write more books, make appearances, be this character Jean Reese. And she was nearing the end of her life and she very much enjoyed a drink to help her, her achieve those things. And she was quite poorly. And so George and Diana Mellie invited Jean Reese to live with them in the 1970s. And she moved into their house... And six months later, she moved out again because <laughs> it was a disaster. Early, do
2: you think they'd read the early Jean Reese novel? I,
3: I, I think they just thought she was, again, would they, you invite they loved- Andy,
2: it, were she still alive? And I know you love Jean Reese like mm. no enough. Would you invite her to come and <laughs> share a flat with you? I would take her
3: out every day, Johnny, and we would go and visit the grave of Judy the donkey. <laughs> we would go to the Palm House. We would take a little drink there. Um no, I wouldn't. Of course no, I no. wouldn't. <laughs> but I think one of the things about Melly, it seems to me, and throw this out, they loved artists. Yeah.
4: They had mm. a stormy
3: relationship with one another, George and Diana. Open Melly, relationship. as we know, open relationship. But they, but they loved artists, mm. outsiders. And one of the things people say about Melly, in the obituaries of Melly, they say how open-hearted mm. he was. Mm. Um, I was talking to somebody just yesterday whose agent, a comedian whose agent had known George Melly when he was a young man, and George had not had an inappropriate relationship with him, but he had tutored him, in, in the agent's words, in how to be gay <laughs> in an era where it was not so easy yeah. to mm-hmm. be gay because George saw it as almost um,
2: pastoral care. Yeah.
4: <laughs> You
2: know, yeah, yeah. He, he reminds me in that regard, actually, of, uh, of Simon Napier Bell, the, the the kind of the you know uh, music manager, managed the man who took Wham to China and managed the Yardbirds. But Simon was once threatened to sue the Daily Mail for suggesting that he wasn't gay. <laughs> but he has come to that weird... I think George Melly was a bit like this. You know, he said, oh, well, I think if I, if I was living my life over now, if I was born now, I wouldn't be gay because it's just so dull. Everybody's put into these little <laughs> pigeonholes. And I think there's that sense always, you know, the fact that that George was was clearly bisexual and had relationships with both men and women. He didn't like to be pigeonholed. He didn't like to be put into a, into well, a box he's,
3: a, he's like he's actually like reese yeah I, who are you i am whatever yeah, i, I am. say i am yeah, 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 right that is yeah. and 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 you you base that on on my dis, my choices
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
7: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
3: Jeff, I'd love you to read a little bit from um, Scouse Mouse in a minute, but there's a wonderful interview you put me on too. Um, with Melly on on daytime ITV, <laughs> I remember this came. This was on daytime he, ITV. He wasn't
2: proud, was he? you
3: put Farmhouse Kitchen has yeah. on, and then you <laughs> then you put this. This comes on.
5: Why the arts, George? Why do you think they're important?
6: Well, I don't think all art's important at all. I never think that sort of art, which is almost an extension of what colour you choose for your curtains or your walls, are important. I don't think of art as purely sensory pleasure in arrangements of colour and shapes. I think art's important in that it suggests, as it were, an alternative reality. It suggests what's inside us instead of what's imposed on us from outside. Um, any picture, which for me is worthwhile, is in a way an exteriorization of what's inside the person and a form of statement which is in itself revolutionary because it opposes the humdrum and the dull.
5: My English teacher at school used to say art is a way of rearranging the pattern so that it makes sense to you. Would you agree with that?
6: No, I think your art teacher at school was talking nonsense. I don't rule out the fact there are good painters and bad painters, but in a way I'd sooner have a bad painter who had something interesting to say about him or herself and the world about him or herself, than a good painter was purely interested in what your art teacher suggested, arranging shapes, patterns and colours.
5: Yeah, I think that really connects with Adrian Henry it, and his, know, in his what, in what way as a painter. Well, his, his attitude of kind of quantity over quality, just always making things, whether it's a yes, poem yeah. or a happening or a,
4: or a picture. What he says there is so beautiful and it's almost like... You could use that as, a, you know, that could be on a poster. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a manifesto statement and it's kind of everything that's gone wrong with cultural education, you know. Yeah. Mm. He, he he. whenever that was, decades ago, that should be on the school, in art, art schools, you know, on the walls in art schools. Uh, we need to open up to possibility. Mm. He says on numerous occasions in, you know, I think, in a few of the books when he's talking about a particular character... He says she was original yeah mm. Mm. and and, 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 it,
2: and it's embodied isn't it it's it, he doesn't it's not kind of like you say it's not a manifesto he's not laying out his philosophy no, in this book no. he's sort of showing you this is what I've got this is, this was my childhood yeah. this is where yeah. this is where I came from yeah and this is it's, this is still what informs my imagination yeah could you read us something yeah, from yeah. the book because I feel we yeah. want to hear some more from the
3: from the book
4: Okay, I, I thought I'd read this, which is kind of we've talked about this kind of a memory and misremembering, and 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 what what is the you know what is the reality of memory, but and we've he he says this uh, specifically to do with childhood. Um, you come to as a child as if from a major operation. Oh, yeah, pink blurs, loom up, solidify interfaces, become recognisable. Objects materialise, continuity establishes itself, early memory is fragmentary, a box full of unsorted snaps, many of them of people and places whose significance is lost, a few film clips of random lengths shown in no particular order, nor is it possible to distinguish in retrospect between what you can really remember and what you were told later, and anyway, many early memories are false." I am sitting beside my mother in an open car. She's driving along a seaside promenade festooned with fairy lights at night. Everything is in shades of milky blue. The sea, the pier, the boarding houses. I am very happy. I smile up at my glamorous mother. The only flaw is that my mother never drove a car. A maid, a friend of my nanny's, is hanging up sheets in a small garden on the side of a house opposite ours in Ivanhoe Road a blue sky full of little clouds, blossom on a stunted, soot-black tree, the sheets very white, the arms of the maid red from the suds, the whole composition cramped and angular, without depth. Why this image, chosen from so many which have been forgotten? Why a white horse galloping across a green hillside in North Wales, lit by brilliant sunshine under a dark sky? Early memory has no discrimination, When everything is equal, without associations, without any meaning beyond itself, there is no measure available, no scale. My mother drives her car, the maid hangs up the washing, wooden pegs bought from gypsies who came to the door. The white horse gallops under the dark sky.
2: That's so um, good. If you didn't know it was by George Melly, you wouldn't know it was by George no, Melly. You'd be right up there, Virginia Woolf, or one of the one of the great modern modernist mm. writers. I think that's
4: an yeah, astonishing
2: beautiful. passage. I've got a similar passage here about
3: number ninety Chatham Street, <laughs> um, Chatty's, Chatty's, which is the house in which his grandparents and various family members lived. Just inside the front door, crammed into quite a small vestibule. Was a huge glass case of stuffed animals largely engaged in carnage. This is the thing you were talking about, about that. It's ridiculously specific, but so good. A fox looked up from dismembering a rabbit. A stoat was in the act of pouncing on a field mouse. A squirrel, frozen in terror, recoiled at the descent of a swooping hawk suspended from a wire. There was also a large cupboard carved with melly crests and containing (laughs) several boxed grey toppers and facing it a substantial table flanked by two of those uncomfortable little high-backed armorial chairs and on it a silver tray for visiting cards. All the corridors at Chatty were painted a deep, shiny orange-brown I mean, it's so, so the sensitivity to object, colour, mood, and there's also one, forgive me, there's a wonderful thing about the library at Chatty. Do you remember this? Yeah. And just, again, imagine the recall here or the reconstruction of it. He talks about the library, he talks about the objects and toys that were in the library and the books. He says the books were rather dull on the whole, improving and pious works in very small print. But there were some splendidly engraved, hand-coloured volumes of fierce beasts and one fascinating book full of sadistic tales about naughty children getting their comeuppance, which even I was able to read as it deployed no word of more than three letters. Mm -hmm. A restraint which must have been considerable (laughs) circumlocution. Ned, one story began, why did you get the cat and put the cat in a bag and put the bag in the sea? For fun. (laughs) It is not fun for you and no fun at all for the cat. (laughs) Needless to say, this homily had no effect on Ned, but he was eventually bitten on the leg by a mad dog and lay in terrible (laughs) agony, the jeering of the creatures he had tormented ringing in his ears. Do you say it is for fun now? Asks a fly he had partially dismembered. Or to revert to the monosyllabic style of the original, did get the fly and did get the leg off the fly. I mean,
2: it's brilliant. Like,
3: what brilliant. it's like, okay. Lizzie, it strikes me, what it's like is somebody itemising a room yeah. in their imagination. Mm. and And we know that he may have had some kind of ocd um either um diagnosed or not but he writes with an almost obsessive yeah. attention to detail because he can't move on from what he's describing until he's got it exactly right
5: yeah i think i think you're right and i think there is something about childhood memory that um it's like the if it was a film, the focus is so close. Um, yeah. Everything is yeah. at eye level or, or or towering above you, and I think he really captures that. And also a kind of fetishization of objects that happens when you're a child. You know, yeah. there's kind of little pots that were on the shelf in my childhood home and I, I can still see mm, the pattern. Yeah. I think he, he gets that across really vividly. And it, it reminds me a lot of your book, Jeff, of Ghost Town, those moments mm. Um that way of accessing childhood through the specifics. Uh-huh. Um, it, but but you're right, I think Melly has something else, which is a sort of compulsive need to, to document. He says this
4: mm-hmm. uh, at one point. He says, it would be absurd not to admit to the obsessive spirit in my remembering so minutely the contents okay. and decoration of an unremarkable terrace some 50 years ago. And then he says this, which I think is kind of the key to the whole thing. Well, I have always tended to understand people initially through the objects they accumulate yes. and the manner in which they display or conceal them. Oh, it's so good! <laughs> that's Ooh, a great bit. That yeah,
2: I, I love his mum describing him towards the end as an affected bit of goods.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, he's a show. You know,
2: we're going to have to wind up in a minute, which is such a shame, Johnny. I'm afraid now it's time for us to bring this gig to a close. A huge thank you to Jeff and Lizzie for bringing George Melly back to such vivid life, and to Nikki and Jacob for making our individual improvisations come together as jazz.
3: If you want show notes with clips, links, and suggestions for further reading for this show and the 204 that we've already recorded, please visit our website at backlisted.fm. And if you want to buy the books discussed on this or any of our other shows, visit our shop at bookshop.org and choose Backlisted as your bookshop. And we're still keen to hear from you on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky, Royal Mail, postcards, yes. <laughs> Aero- or just or just think of us
2: occasionally. <laughs> Yes, if you want to hear Backlisted early and ad-free, you can subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Your subscription brings other benefits if you subscribe at the lock listener level. For a monthly fee that's probably a better investment than buying a bale of Tom Melly's wholesale wool, you'll get not one, but two extra exclusive podcasts every month features the three of us talking and recommending the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. For those of you who enjoyed our What Have You Been Reading slot, that's where you'll now find it. It's an hour of tunes, musings and superior book chat. Plus, lot listeners get their names read out, accompanied by lashings of praise and gratitude like this. Leslie Wood, thank you. Christian Powers, thank you. Terence Stevik, thank you. Richard Riette, Thank you.
3: Emma Grove, thank you very much. Alexis Thompson, thank you. Stephen Van Emel, thank you. Corinne McChesney, thank you so much. Now, before we go, we're actually going to go out with a tune from George, but before we do that, this has gone quickly, hasn't it, Lizzie? Too quickly. How on earth do you are we, do we think know. we could even do this in an hour? But is there <laughs> anything else you would like to add or say about George Melly while the camera is rolling?
5: I found this little quote in Revolved Into Style that kind of lit me up because I thought, oh, I think this might be the key to, to Melly or to, to something about him anyway. Um, he's talking about popular culture and pop culture. And he says that pop culture made us, and then this is the quote, we re-examined our aesthetic premises and owned up to the areas around us which we affected to despise, but in fact rejoiced in. And you think, oh gosh, that's it, isn't it? He was, was owning <laughs> up to yeah. all these yeah. kind of he's, cultural he's, impulses. And he's up the LPs. Smashing time. Yeah.
3: Smashing, smashing time. time. That's yeah. exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I could yeah. not agree more. Absolutely. One, one. Yeah. So pleased we got that in. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Jeff. There's nothing left.
4: Brief, is there. Briefly. Briefly um, his father's last words to him. Oh yeah. Yeah. His last words to me were always do what you want to do. I never did.
2: Yeah. Brilliant.
3: That's like the starting pistol, isn't it?
4: Yeah. And that's what he did. Yeah. You know.
3: And he kept going. Yeah. And kept going. Mm. And kept going. Well, this has been this has been <laughs> such a such a joy. We're so enjoying having this conversation. We're going to keep going. Um, And uh, if you want to hear us talk about uh, George Melly's review of A Spaniard in the Works by John Lennon, and you want to hear some of the other things we had stacked up that we didn't have time to talk about during the last hour, well, you can come over because next week... On our Patreon, there will be an extra half an hour all about George Melly, the people he knew, um, the times he lived through. There's just so much to say. Um, We're we're awarding ourselves a a special (laughs) extra episode. And next week, that will be available on our Patreon, John, which you can find at...
2: www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted.
3: So hopefully see you next week over there. In the meantime, we're going to leave you with George himself a very early records of, of George's. George, who is no longer with us, but of course he still is with us because he's singing to us from the cemetery. This from 1950s... <laughs> next, to,
2: next to the donkey. <laughs> from ni- yes, next to the, Judy
3: the donkey. The 1956, here is some uh, hot jazz by George Melly: Cemetery Blues. And I, I urge you to look up online the sleeve of the EP from which this comes, which is called George Melly Sings Doom. I'm not going to tell you what's on it but while you listen to this piece of music th- 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 go and find the EP George Melly Sings Doom and this from that EP is Cemetery Blues thank you John Mitchinson thank you Lizzie thank you Jeff. bye everyone we'll see you next time see you next bye. time everybody bye thank you.
7: I knew a gal Named Cemetery Live Down in Tennessee She had got a pair Of mean old graveyard eyes Full of misery And both by night and day You could hear her sing The blues away I'm going down to the cemetery, cause the world is all wrong. I'm going down to the cemetery, cause the world is all wrong. To join with all them spooks and hear them sing my sorrow song. i got a date to meet a ghost By the name of Jones I've got a date to meet a ghost By the name of Jones Well, it makes me happy To hear him rattle his bones He ain't no fine dresser He don't wear nothing but a sack I said he ain't no sharp dresser He don't wear nothing but a sack But every time he kisses me Them funny feelings scramble up my back